0: Scripture sheet was sent to you in the email that went out this morning. It's also in the Thursday Epistle, and if you don't have either of those or if you desire to follow along in your own Bible, you want to be in Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking at a lot of Scripture today as we continue in our series on themes from the book of Acts. There is a brand of Christianity that has sought to maintain certain elements of the faith. While at the same time rejecting all of the supernatural that is found in Scripture. At least those things that you would regard as miraculous. Few endeavors of men have been more foolhardy or vain than that. I I mean, our faith at its core and in its essence, it is miraculous. And it's all about the miraculous. I mean, you think of our major holidays. What are they about? They're about a virgin birth and a resurrection. Our holy book, it is A written record of the history of God's people, and and this record contains many, many miracles. Our focus presently, as you know, is on the book of Acts, and there is a miracle in half of the 28 chapters in Acts. Now, by that term miracle, I am referring to an occurrence that requires some kind of temporary displacement of natural laws, highly unlikely events. They may be acts of God, but not necessarily what one would call a miracle. A miracle is a tangible, a sensible, that is perceived by the senses, event that is naturally inexplicable. A miracle suggests the existence and activity of a power that is outside of nature, that is above nature, that is therefore what we call supernatural. And miracles are definitely a theme in our book of Acts. We begin in chapter 2. This chapter begins with the Holy Spirit falling on that small gathering of Jesus' people there in Jerusalem. We've looked at it before in this series. There was a noise. There was the appearance of tongues of fire falling on each person. There was a miracle of speaking, a miracle of hearing in languages that were unknown to the one who was speaking them. And so impressive was this, that 3,000 persons joined up with the church after observing and then hearing the message from Peter. Then we read this in Acts 2 and verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Now, you could wish that there was more there, but we do see that the miraculous was part of the church's experience from the start. But... But the miraculous was apparently limited to the ministry of the apostles. Even in the moment of the fresh outpouring of the Spirit on the church, it was not the case that every believer was going around doing miracles. Not at all. Now, you may hear certain Christian teachers who tell you to expect a miracle in your life every single day, or they may paint a picture of the normal Christian life in which miracles are somewhat routine. But that has never been the reality, never. Not in my experience, not in yours, not in any portion of the history of the church, not in Acts. Instead what we find is that miracle working powers were bestowed by God for a particular reason to particular persons. Here it is the apostles, a dozen at most. And I'm not diminishing it. It's a big, big deal, but some in the church suggest it was or should be otherwise. In chapter 2, it was the apostles doing the miracles. In chapter 3, it was Peter and John doing a miracle. This is the one where they raised up the lame man. Then you come to chapter 5, and we read it again in verse 12, at the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were taking place. Chapter 6 marks a bit of a change. Here in this chapter, seven men are ordained as leaders in the church, and two of them, Stephen and Philip, They started preaching the gospel, and both of them were used of God in the miraculous. So there were some other than the apostles, but only two are noted in Acts. And again, it is quite clear that miracles were far from being the norm for believers. Except for two cases of Stephen and Philip, all the miracles in Acts, all the miracles in Acts are associated associated with the apostles, and most especially with Peter, and then with Paul, and there's a clear reason why this is. In Peter's sermon in Acts 2, we read this about our Lord in verse 22, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. I'd have you focus on that word there, attested. It means authenticated. It means verified. Jesus was shown to be God's man by His miracles. And the same thing will be the case with the apostles. The miracles God works through them authenticate them as the agents of the covenant, as true witnesses of the Son of God. Here is what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians to a church wherein his apostleship was being challenged and questioned. And there he says in chapter 12 verse 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. One of the words used there is the word signs, and think about what is a sign. It is something that points us to another reality. You see the golden arches, and you know that, well, there's a McDonald's somewhere nearby. You see the colonel, and he suggests that there's a KFC in that vicinity. You see miracles, and you know that an authentic prophet of God is on the loose, or at least may be. Jesus was attested. The apostles were attested, authenticated by these miracles. That is their primary purpose. And so we read in the early chapters of Acts about miracles largely through Peter. The latter half of Acts, miracles largely, well, exclusively through Through Paul, and they all were by Paul, who was converted and called to his ministry in Acts chapter 9. In Acts 14, he is in Lystra, where he is encountering a lame man. And there in verse 10, so Paul called to him in a loud voice and said, stand up. And the man jumped to his feet and started walking. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in their local dialect, these men are gods in human Form, Now, that was taking the sign a little far. Paul had to reel them back into the realization that he was just a messenger of the one true God. He was not a God himself. But this was Paul's first miracle that we know of. By the way, a few verses after being called a God, certain folks in Lystra actually tried to put Paul to death, someone has rightly noted that miracles and martyrdom often if not usually come together in the economy of God, which should make us think twice before asking for lots of miracles. But Paul has stepped at this point fully into his apostleship, miracles included. Then we come to chapter 19 of Acts. Paul started supplementing his rational defense of the faith with the miraculous. There in verse 11, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs and aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out." So this performing of miracles seems to have become part of his ministry. The signs of an apostle, power over demons, power over disease. The result in chapter 19, verse 20, "...so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing." That's the point. The miracles, they were not an end in themselves. This was the end. The end was the advance of the gospel to the glory of Christ. The story continues in Acts chapter 20. A young man named Eutychus was in a a window listening to Paul preach, apparently a fairly lengthy message, and as he listened to Paul preach, he fell asleep and fell out of the window to a certain uh, distance to the ground where he landed and apparently had died. But Paul went down, embraced him, and lifted him up alive. A resurrection. Jesus had done that. Elijah had done that. Elisha had done that. Peter had done that. Now Paul raising people from the dead. This is extremely rare, even among these characters. Not something to count on, and you know what that means. As you listen to me, I guess at home, sit somewhere comfortable and safe, because if you, if you go to sleep and fall, I cannot guarantee a resurrection. So the point to get here is that miracles were largely restricted to the apostolic team, and they were a major factor in authenticating their ministry, giving credibility to what they spoke and eventually to what they wrote. So now, do miracles happen today? That's a question that cannot be answered by just studying the Bible. You have to look around and evaluate what you see and what you hear. Some of us believe that we have witnessed genuine, real miracles. Some of us don't think we ever really have. But I I will say also that ours does not appear, appear, at least, to be an age of miracles. And by that phrase, age of miracles, I mean a period of time marked by an unusually high number of miracles, such as was the time in in the days of Moses, then in the days of Elijah and Elisha, and the time of Jesus and the apostles. As B.B. Warfield points out in his book, Counterfeit Miracles, Claims for the Miraculous, they did not gradually decrease after the death of the apostles. Uh, They disappeared immediately after the death of the apostles. The second century A.D. was a century pretty much void of any claims to the miraculous. But then in the third century, claims of miracles began again and increased so greatly that if the reports are true, our day would pale to the miraculous sixth century when pieces of the cross seemed to be all over and miracle waters were working wonders everywhere. But just as often is the case today, documentation and proof was rare. This last point leads us nicely into a consideration of the general reasons for miracles, as indicated in Scripture. According to Scripture, miracles occurred in three major periods, as I've said. The period of Moses and and Joshua, the time of Elijah and his successor Elisha, and the time of Christ and the apostles. There are some other occasions when a miracle or two may have occurred outside of these periods, but in each of these three periods there was a proliferation of the miraculous. Now, listen, God can do miracles anytime He pleases, but we see that the Lord pretty much limits His miraculous work in Scripture to these three periods, and there are three common denominators that mark these periods, and may help us understand why God sent miracles when God did send the miracles. First, the miracles introduced a new era of revelation. The time of the books of Moses and Joshua, the prophetic age of Elijah and Elisha and the New Testament era were were all times when God gave revelation in substantial quantities. For example, uh, the miracles of Moses confirmed that God was speaking by this man who then went on to pen the first five books of the Old Testament. Secondly, miracles authenticated the messengers of Revelation. Moses proved that he heard from God by performing many miracles. Elijah and Elisha even raised people from the dead to demonstrate their authenticity as prophets of God. Jesus, Paul, and Peter appealed to their miracles as indicators that they were truly sent by God as we have already discussed. And then thirdly, miracles called the attention of those listening to hear. The word of God. Only by miracles did Moses grab the attention of both Egypt and Israel. Maybe you remember how God sent fire from heaven to call attention to Elijah's powerful message against Baal worship in his day, and of course the crowds that gathered to hear Jesus were interested as much or more in what he would do as in what he would teach. In the book of Acts, we see the very same dynamic at work, chapter 9, verse 32. Now, as Peter was traveling through all these regions, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Immediately he got up, and all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now we understand that for anybody to truly turn to the Lord in a saving way, he or she must be born anew by the Holy Spirit. But do you get the impression from how Luke wrote this that the healing of Aeneas was a significant factor in the folks in Lydda coming to faith? It's obviously so. The healing got their attention and convinced them to give the message of Christ a serious hearing. And when they did that, They were persuaded. The very very next story in Acts takes Peter to Joppa, which was close to Lydda, and there there was a woman named Tabitha who had just died of a serious illness. And here's how Luke reports that story. A couple of men brought Peter to the deceased woman at her house where many had gathered and were mourning. Chapter 9 verse 40, Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, "Tabitha." Arise, And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up and gave her his hand and raised her up. And calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. It became known all over Joppa. And here's how it ends again. And many believed in the Lord. Many believed in the Lord. John Wimber wrote a book called power evangelism, and in it he references stories like this, in which the power of God shows up in extraordinary ways, with the result being that sinners are led to salvation in Christ. The salvations, they are more important than the healings, but the healings led by the mercies of God to the spiritual awakenings. When we ask how the Christians, these early Christians, were able to change the planet as they were. We have to include the miraculous as part of the explanation. How could the apostles get a hearing with a message like they were bringing? Why would anyone take them seriously? In part because of the astonishing miracles that accompanied their work. So to review, miracles introduced a new era of revelation. Miracles authenticated the messengers of Revelation. Miracles called the attention of people to hear the Word of God. That is why they are called signs. They point to a greater and more substantial reality which God is bringing to light. So let's apply all of that to the question of miracles today. We can see that the Lord may choose to bless men and ministries in the miraculous in order to increase the audience for and the influence of the gospel. But, on the other hand, we are not in an era of new revelation. Miracles, they're great things. I would love to see a multitude of them, but it is not necessarily true that we should expect miracles to be occurring like they did in the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels or in the book of Acts. They they were not prevalent in most of biblical history and it should not surprise us if they are not especially prevalent in our own day. The difficult part of this whole question is this, is it the case that we see relatively few miracles simply because God has sovereignly chosen to withhold them at this time, or is it due to a lack of faith on the part of the people of God? some some believe that god is always in the miracle business if there are any takers so that if we're not seeing miracles we are the problem we lack the needed faith now now this view does have some scriptural weight behind it. There is obviously a connection between miracles and faith in the Scriptures. Jesus said if you have the faith of a mustard seed you can speak to a mountain and say move and it will move. Scripture says that the disciples failed to heal on at least one occasion because of their lack of faith. It says that when Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth he did not perform many miracles because of their unbelief. It seems to me it may be right that if we had more faith we would see more miracles. It also seems to me that it may be wrong, and that God has just been pleased to restrain the arm of His power from being expressed in the miraculous as He did in the life and ministry of faithful Abraham, faithful David, faithful Isaiah, and even faithful John the Baptist. How will we know? The only way I know we can find out is to eliminate any barriers that we may put up to healing and to miracles. If the problem may be that we are too corrupt, then let's come clean and repent. If the problem may be that we lack faith, then let's get our our, our nose in the Word of God and have our faith built up by that instrument. If the problem may be that we don't pray for healing and miracles, well then let's do pray. The Lord said, you receive not because you ask not. So brothers and sisters, let's ask the Lord. And we can go beyond asking the Lord to simply guide the hand of surgeons, and we can pray that God would make people well by His direct intervention and power. He invites us to pray for healing, to ask that He would touch the sick and make them well. Let's do that, and let's do that with a greater sense of expectancy. Are we even looking for God to send supernatural answers to prayer our way? Might it be that we do so all too seldom. If you are like me, you have been terribly turned off by the ministry of healing by some of those who make it their calling card. We see that their healing ministry is largely done on stages in front of big crowds and with lots of music, very unlike the healings in Scripture which were spontaneous acts of compassion and power. And, and we sometimes see pomposity and rotten theology from these healing ministry folks, and we naturally turn against anything that would remind us of such as these, and, and we are skeptical about their teaching. But we need to be careful here not to develop our theology by reacting to the errors of others. We must build upon the pure Word of God. And that leads us to our final thought about miracles and acts, the healing work of the apostles was subservient to the proclamation of the gospel. As wonderful as healing the sick may be, it is obvious that it was used by Jesus and then by His followers as a servant of the greater task, which was to proclaim the kingdom of Jesus Christ. In Luke 4, after spending much time in healing, Jesus was being urged by a crowd to stay on and continue His healing ministry. But here's how He replied, Luke 4:43, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities. I must preach for I was sent for this purpose." So we kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And when you read the miracles worked by the apostles, almost every time they served the purpose of gaining an an audience for and credibility for the gospel message. That is where ultimate life transforming power lies. And that is why we are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. As they went about telling men of Christ, they would heal. They were preachers who sometimes healed. They were not healers who also preached. This this does not at all mean that we are demeaning the ministry of healing. It served a fantastic purpose. But its purpose was found and is found in the advancement of the truth of the Word. The ministry of which is even more ultimate and even greater than that of healing and miracles. So it seems appropriate as we wrap up this meditation in Acts that we pray. And we pray for God to do miracles. Now the vast majority of the miracles in Acts, maybe all of them are, well not all, but most. But the vast majority are miracles of healing. And we have plenty of opportunities just for those we know and love in North Park Church to pray for healing right now. You may know some of those who are under the weather with the COVID virus right now or other things. There's uh, Dr. Chris Cerucci, there's Jim Shadel, Sandy Richardson, Uh, Jim Baldoff, Abraham Musa, Joanne Rimmel, all of these dealing with chronic conditions. There's others that I'm sure I have not mentioned here that maybe you know of. But let's call on the Lord for their sake and for their healing, and that God might do something miraculous and wonderful and glorious to our joy and His praise. Join me in prayer. Father, we are glad as we read of the miracles that were done many years ago that bore witness to Jesus, to the validity of his message, to his lordship and his salvation. Thank you, Lord, for how in ages past you used those miracle working powers that you bestowed upon individuals to bring testimony and power and authenticity to the message of the gospel. And by that message, you transformed the world and you have transformed our lives as well, and we rejoice in that. But God, we believe that You are able to heal now, that You are able to do miracles now, and we pray that You would increase our faith, increase our our connection with You, and our confidence that You are a God who hears the cries of Your people. Lord, we come together today to pray for Your healing, first of all, of a sick nation. And we are sick in a variety of ways, oh God, we pray that You would come and do a miracle of healing on the United States of America. And then we pray for specific friends that we know of, for Chris Cerucci and Jim Shadle and Sandy and Jim and Abraham and Joanne. God, we ask that You would intervene in every one of these situations and show Yourself strong to them. We know you can do miracles in giving people incredible peace in the midst of distress, but we pray that some would find themselves rising up out of their sick bed, that their test would reveal that cancer is gone, and that blood markers have improved without any medical explanation. Oh God, glorify Yourself in these lives. And now I invite you to pray silently at home for those you know of who are very much in need of the healing power of God in their lives. We thank you Lord that you hear our prayers which we offer in the strong and powerful name of your Son and our Savior Jesus Christ, Amen.